Our reading today is from Psalm 63. Uh, in the Pew Bibles, this can be found on page 822. Psalm 63, a Psalm of David, when he was in the desert of Judah. Reading from verse 1. You, Lord, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be, be, will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glorify in him, while the, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Amen. Good morning, everyone. It'd be good to have a Bible open at Psalm 63, and let's pray, asking God for help to understand his word. Let's pray. Loving Father, we thank you that you're the God who's been pleased to speak to us, and we ask this morning that you would be pleased to work in our hearts as well, uh, so that we might be willing to listen, uh, able to understand willing to change in response to your word. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. No one's really sure why he did it, uh, but many years back, a guy, Robert Baguki, an Alaskan firefighter on holidays in Australia, thought he needed a spiritual quest of sorts, a bit like Jesus, so 40 days and 40 nights out in the wilderness being tested, and he picks up a map of Australia in the Great Sandy Desert. That's the shot, right? Let's go there. His plan was to ride a push bike from the Sandfire Roadhouse, which is about 300 kilometres south of Broome, to a place called McLarty Hills, which is in the middle of nowhere. Spend a week out there, you know, fasting, praying, waiting on God, and then head north to Fitzroy Crossing. That's around 600 kilometres all up. And the only problem with his plan was the desert, I guess. Um, <laughs> you know, push bikes don't go great in the sand. So he ditched his bike, which meant ditching his supplies, including his water, and he walks. Now, he never made it to McLarty Hills, but he did do 40 days and 40 nights out in the wilderness with no food and not a lot of water, just him, the desert and a dried up creek bed. Uh, six weeks later, after setting out, he was seen and found by uh, the Channel 9 helicopter alive, 30 kilos lighter. Now look, I, I, I kind of get the let's go on a spiritual quest thing 
but you're asking the question, aren't you, like, why there, of all places? Uh, and ha- how do you survive that kind of thing? How do you survive the wilderness? That's the kind of question lurking in this psalm, really. Uh, a song by King David about being in the desert. The superscript right at the top of the psalm. That's actually part of the original text. A psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. And verse 1, he talks about it. He's in a dry and weary land where there's no water. You can speculate about when this happens. Maybe it's when Saul's chasing him. I think it's when his son, Absalom, chases him out of Jerusalem, which you can read about in 2 Samuel 15, and he winds up in the wilderness. The thing is, this isn't just about being in the desert literally. I think he's talking about being in a desert spiritually because look at verse 1 again. He says, I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. He's thirsty. His soul is thirsty for God. And that's because he is away from Jerusalem. He's away from the sanctuary. It's the place in his day where you would find God in a visible way to meet with him and so God really does feel distant he's drying out spiritually and maybe that's how you feel today or you felt like that before Uh, it, it could be a season of grief you're in and loneliness where you just feel abandoned by others that you miss and you feel abandoned by God as well. Or maybe it's a season of sickness that you're in, and so often what goes on with our bodies has an impact on us spiritually. There is a connection. Perhaps you're depressed. Uh, Darkness is your only friend. You cannot think of anything good right now, and you feel spiritually dry or you're tumbling again into the same old sin and you feel like God is just getting further and further away from you no matter what you do. And look, it doesn't have to be as dramatic feeling as that. Uh, Life is brutal, absolutely, but it's also just flat out boring most of the time, isn't it? You know, once upon a time you thought you were off on an adventure, a quest, and by 40-something life's a treadmill. You know, um, changing nappies, boring work, wrangling kids, trying to remember who it was you married. Uh, I do remember her. She's up the back. Love you, Nere. Scraping by financially. You know, you try and read your Bible. You try and come to church. You try and pray. It just doesn't seem to connect or make much of a difference. Nothing's really bad, but nothing's really good either. And you just thought there should just be a little bit more zap and sizzle in life. But no. And you really do wonder if you can drag your feet through this for another 40 years. You may as well be out in the great sandy desert, hey? And this is where the Psalms are enormously helpful because they articulate the emotional world of God's people very honestly, but they do more than just help you give vent. They help reorient you towards God and towards life. And that's what David's doing in Psalm 63. He's singing about how to survive the desert spiritually. So we could call this, let's go cheesy, David's desert devotional. Let's do that. Singing his soul into harmony with God, which is not cheesy at all. Um, It's a song which teaches you how to survive 
There's three things I think about souls that survive the wilderness. The first is they seek after God. Look at verse 1 again. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My, I, I thirst for you. It's the felt absence of God that makes him desirable. And in here, there's some more reasons why he desires God. He's worth seeking, verse 2. He says, I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. In the desert, he's thinking back in his mind's eye to where again you would see God. And the tabernacle in that day, where David is, it's not a blinding light and sound spectacular. There's just some really ordinary stuff in the tabernacle. Some priests, some sacrifices, the Ark of the Covenant containing the law, the ordinary things of God. And I'm not sure it's the rituals he's wanting, but the substance which they point to, which is, again, the God who dwells among his people. A righteous, holy, just God who forgives sin. That's the kind of power and glory he's thinking about, right? And it's also the love, notice, of God that makes him worth seeking and singing about. Verse 3, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. And when he's talking about love there, the word in Hebrew is hesed, it's the steadfast covenant love of God. That's better than life itself. That's what makes you seek him. Now, I reckon they're startling lyrics at one level when you chew on them for a bit. Your love is better than life. I'd wager we actually find that kind of hard to believe. We tend to believe that our life, like the, you know, the stuff of life which we make for ourselves, you know, your, your job, your family, your social life, your little castle and kingdom is better than God's steadfast love. Maybe that's how we think intuitively. Like, what do you want most? Uh, a home, a nice home, happy family out in the burbs, the mortgage knocked over by 50, imagine that. Um, a bit of success at work, or heck, maybe a lot. A fun hobby chucked in for good measure. A bit of travel so that you've got some good experiences to reminisce on with others. Whatever it is, we tend to think that that is life and that should satisfy but it won't because we're actually really made for more. And often that's that niggling sense that kicks in once you've ticked off one of those things, that sense of dis dissatisfaction. It's the tip-off that you are actually made for more. I suspect our spiritual dryness often comes about because, well, yes, life is flat-out tough, but because we settle for the small things which we think are going to fix that that are going to take our attention away from how boring and sadly painful life often is. We, we look for the love, for the kick of those other things versus the steadfast love of God. A love that's actually set on preserving our soul forever. Look, getting that your love is better than life, it teaches you that you can lose the best things as far as everyone else is concerned but still have everything. Like, think of David again. Like, in this situation, it looks like he's lost his place and his prestige in Jerusalem, the comforts of his palace, loses the throne of Israel for a moment, loses a son, 
but he can still say that. You, you can lose your health, your wealth, your family, your looks, your sanity, but because God's love is better than life, you can still have it all. Now, that brings us to the second thing about souls that survive. They seek God, first of all. Secondly, they're satisfied by God. It's kind of connected. Verse 5, David says, I'll be satisfied as with the richest of foods. Uh, if you've got an old King James version in front of you, it says, my soul shall be satisfied with marrow and fatness. <laughs> what a way to put it. What a contrast to verse 1. It's almost like with God, it's full fat and no skinny options. And again, it feels ludicrous. It feels like desert delirium, but I don't think he's like sort of shoveling sand into his mouth and saying this is steak. It's the soul, it's the real you satisfied by the real thing. Uh, in verses 6 and 7, I think he's been here before. God satisfied him before, gave to him again for satisfaction. Verse 8, as he says, My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. Uh, it makes me think of what James talks about in James 4, verse 8. You come near to God and he'll come near to you. When we desire something... Uh, seek satisfaction in something or someone other than God, your, your soul goes hungry. You seek satisfaction in God, funny thing, he comes near. Like when he feels distant, I guess the question to often ask is, who moved? You're looking elsewhere, maybe that's why you don't see him. You move toward him, he just gets bigger and perhaps you feel fuller. Now, yeah, that's all well and good, but it's another thing we struggle to believe. That God can really satisfy our souls. And look, I'm almost embarrassed to admit this, but my subconscious has been pretty much shaped by TV advertising that I watched as a teenager. So deep down, I really do think it's Snickers that satisfies. See, it works. It really does work. That's why they spend the money. Um... That thinking infiltrates our hearts and minds, not just at the level of what chocolate bar you go for, but spiritually. You know, settling for the spiritual equivalent of, of chocolate, lesser things, not necessarily bad things, which we substitute for the main course. This psalm's getting you to think, you know, is God your satisfaction? Is God having him like really dining out on a three-course meal in the best restaurant you can imagine? Now, here's what that might look like, though. That's still pretty abstract, coming near to God and finding your satisfaction in him. Maybe it means in a time when money is really tight. I know for some of you, the cost of living is frightening. Uh, despite that, you might actually believe that more money won't necessarily fix everything absolutely. And so practically it means you don't just leap at a promotion that offers more money straight up. We actually think as tight as life is, more money might stir up some other kind of discontent in us. It can be a vicious cycle with more money. It can just mean wanting more stuff and never being satisfied. We actually think as tight as things are, having less sets you free, if you like, to depend on God. Whereas rich as we need to be because of God's steadfast love. And again, don't hear me saying, well, I think this is easy. I don't think it's easy to believe, but I think that God 
if you think that God is like dining out on the richest of foods, if you actually categorically get that, I think it makes a difference to a bunch of things in life. How does it change your perspective on what you have or don't have? Is God himself enough? There's one more thing about surviving that David talks about. You seek God, you find your satisfaction in him. The third thing is you're sure of your deliverance. And if this is about when Absalom's chasing David out of Jerusalem, he's writing this after the fact, but there's no reason to think that he doesn't believe it in the heat of the moment. He's sure that God's going to deliver him. So verse 9, those who want to kill me or seek my life will be destroyed. Verse 10, they literally become fat portions for desert animals. Uh, Verse 11, that the king, and you've got to think Messiah, right? God's king will rejoice in God. And I think the thing to notice here is that this isn't just about David getting delivered. He sees a bigger deliverance for Israel, for God's people. Something we need to understand when we read the Psalms is that often the fortunes of the nation of Israel, of God's people, are tied up with the fortunes of God's king. So verse 11 again, David says, All who swear by God will glory in him while the mouths of liars will be silenced. And look, our English translation goes with all who swear by God, but the Hebrew is ambiguous, all who swear by him... And for what it's worth, I think the hymn is David, actually. All who swear by David will glorify in him while the mouths of liars will be silenced. It's giving the Messiah your trust and your allegiance and your share in God's deliverance of him. And I think this is where then this psalm starts to trickle out of the desert in Judah into our lives as Christians reading the Old Testament. Your connection with the Messiah is what makes this become your song, your desert devotion. I guess the troubling thing I've felt in getting ready for this morning is that this does feel like uh, if you're in the dry wilderness today, it's up to you to fix it. So you seek God, find your satisfaction in him, just work up that sense of satisfaction, think the right things and, hey, presto, you're delivered from the wilderness. Well, that's self-salvation and that's not good news and that's not a song I think is worth singing. Just getting your thinking right and telling yourself to desire God so you'll survive, I'm not sure that's what this psalm is saying. The reason that David survives and sings is because of God's strong love and commitment to him as Israel's Messiah. And the reason an Old Testament believer would sing this song is because of God's commitment to them in David, their Messiah. And it's the same for us, except we've got a greater reason to sing it and make it our song, because, well, we've got a greater king to swear by. You can swear by, well, Jesus the king and be sure of your deliverance because of god's love for you in him because of him for you if you like and i think seeing this as jesus's desert devotion actually helps us to read it well and say amen to it you see a faithful israelite like jesus would have sung this song plenty each week possibly but he does more than sing it he 
is it? He embodies the kind of relationship with God that it's actually talking about, of clinging to God in a spiritual wilderness, a dry and weary land. I mean, in the Gospels, he's out in the wilderness being tempted, isn't he, to find his satisfaction in something other than his relationship with his father. He knows what this is about. I think the very idea of God the Son, the eternal Son of God, taking on flesh and coming into this world, it must have felt like being in a desert sometimes. Stepping off the throne, emptying himself, giving up the glory of heaven and experiencing life in the flesh, experiencing everything that makes life tough. You know, the desert days that you and me have. It's great to remember that when you're feeling like that, he's been there. He's been there like you. There's a worse desert that he endures too, isn't there? There's this moment in John chapter 19 as Jesus hangs on a cross and just before he dies, verse 28 of chapter 19 in John's Gospel, he cries out, I thirst. And what's he thirsty for? It's the spiritually driest moment ever. It's the worst felt absence of God's loving presence ever. As he dies for us, as he pays for us, not seeking God, not desiring him, uh, turning away from God to slake our thirst for life elsewhere, he is being dried out by a spiritual thirst that he has never known before. He is experiencing the longing for God that people who've rejected God all their lives will feel for eternity in that moment at the cross. And he's doing that, folks, so that you won't. And he does it because he knows he'll be delivered and those who swear by him will be too. And that then becomes the song for you, doesn't it? When you see that Jesus is the one who this song is about, he becomes the reason to pick it up and sing. I'm not just saying try harder to change how you feel. Think about the one who it's about. When you see that he is the clearer vision of God's power and glory, clearer than what David ever saw in the tabernacle, when you see that he is the tangible proof that God's love is better than life, when you know that Jesus gives us his spirit, like he says in John's Gospel, so that streams of living water flow up from within us, no matter what's going on around us. That's the kind of psalm that goes to work on your heart. A song that changes you and more and more you want to sing like David, except you're singing, Jesus, you are my God and earnestly I seek you. And so then in the dry times in the grip of grief, in the depths of depression, in the loneliness, in the sickness and, hey, in the boredom too, you can be sure you'll survive. It blew my mind ages ago when I was reading about Robert Baguki uh, that he knew that he could and would probably die. (laughs) But he still goes, right? Uh, He says, I figured if this thing was meant to work, God would look after me. And I'm still like, dude, if this is meant to work, God would look after us. No, we can be dead certain that this will work, our deliverance, when we swear by Jesus and trust him. Again, it's not that the dry times disappear from your life, but we know for sure that we've been saved from the driest time. You won't experience that. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Psalms, these songs which give words to our emotions, particularly when life is hard and dry and thirsty. And we do confess that we find the idea of longing for you hard to grasp. We find it hard to believe that your love is better than life. We find it so hard to believe that you alone will satisfy our souls. So we thank you, Father, for Jesus, the King who comes, David's greatest son, who endures the worst thirst, the worst desert, so that we don't, so that we know that your love is better than life. Father, help us to swear by him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.